Thanks for tuning in to Organic Matters. And for this part of the show, we're going to begin with a little, a little talk about planting zones. We've thought about planting zones. The first thing you go and you buy your seeds and look on the back is, is a little guide that shows you, little, usually in color bands, where you're in, if you live in you know, middle Tennessee, then you're a seven point B or 7A, or if you live in Texas, you're an 8, and then it wanders around, something to do with altitude and everything. But the difference in the temperatures in any given area now compared to, let's say, 25 years ago or more, have changed in some areas much more dramatically than others. Well, I guess most of the seed companies' things have kept up with it. Some have not. And you might find there's plants that your father planted or your family planted that are not doing well where you live anymore. And likewise, you might find plants that basically wouldn't have been able to be grown in the zone you're living in now that are perfectly acceptable. And this is part of us changing the climate, of course, also a part of what Mother Nature has done for millions of years. Your area's preferred flowers, shrubs, and trees depend on your climate. A plant that's happy in North Carolina, for instance, is probably going to be pretty miserable in North Dakota, and vice versa. A warming climate is affecting the natural ranges of plants around the country. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA, has formalized these ranges into what they call hardiness zones. They're strips of similar climate that run roughly east to west across the country, Again, except in the high mountains and sometimes along the coast. NOAA has created a similar map based on the annual lowest climate normals for a uh, 30-year period, roughly. As an example, Zone 3, which has an average annual lowest temperature of minus 40 to minus 30. Think about that, folks. That's way up there. Only allows the hardiest of plants, such as garlic and asparagus, to even live. However, on the other end, Zone 10, South Florida, South Texas, allows for tomatillos and other heat-tolerant species to live very well. The map shows most regions in between, with occasional inconsistencies due to, again, the local microclimates that we go through from the coast, especially up into the higher mountains. As our temperatures rise and the habitats shift due to human-caused climate change, these planting zones are constantly shifting north very slowly. Compared to the 1951-1980 baseline, which is what has just become what we call the average coldest temperatures uh, from 1989 to 2018, are more than 3 degrees Fahrenheit warmer on the average in any given city. Temperatures have increased for more than 95% of the 244 stations where they're analyzed on a regular basis. Now, we think three or more degrees, well, is that really a problem? The truth is the shift is affecting farmers and gardeners alike. According to the Third National Climate Assessment, many iconic species, meaning what's normal there, may disappear from regions where they've been prevalent or become extinct after living there for millions of years, altering some regions so much that their mix of plant and animal life will become almost unrecognizable uh, over the next several decades. 
The National Wildlife Federation predicts that by 2080, the Mississippi magnolia, just an iconic tree from up in that part of the country, and the Ohio buckeye will shift out of their current zones. As a matter of fact, in one Forest Service study, 70% of the northern tree species analyzed have already shifted north, including cultural favorites like sugar maples and quaking aspen. Planters can adapt by shifting to plants that tolerate heat, drought, and downpours. But these seeds of change are yet another indicator of our ever-warming world. For those of you interested, incidentally, you can find a USDA hardiness zone map if you can get to a computer anywhere. And the newest ones are even easier to use because you can actually put your own zip code in and they'll really, really specialize for even microclimates in certain areas. For instance, I lived in Fort Davis, Texas for a while. And the difference between just Fort Davis, for instance, and a, a town 20 miles away might be three or four degrees difference on average, depending a lot on altitude out there. So what I could plant in Fort Davis, maybe they couldn't plant successfully at the McDonald Observatory just uh, several miles away, but there was a difference in altitude of several thousand feet. In general, all they really do, the methodology is that each individual point on the local graphic you pull up, they calculate the rolling 30-year average of their annual lowest minimum temperature using, they have a, 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 it's called a formula, applied climate information system that they use. They then calculate the average value of these individual averages to determine the long-term average up to at least as late as 2018. And that'll show an individual horizontal line on that graph. So if you're really as interested in it as I am, and it may may not make a lot of difference, but in a few plants, it really will. It'll maybe grow some plants you weren't able to grow at all or your family 30 years ago, and others may be actually under stress. So if you really want to kind of get accurate about it and, and study it a bit, it it's, is called the USDA Hardiness Zone Maps. And if you just put that in a, um, using a word here, a Google search, you'll be able to, uh, to catch up on the newest temperature averages in basically the zone wherever you're going to be planting your garden. And just as an aside, you might want to think of one other thing. Yes, the temperature is important. But the other thing is the rain averages have really changed in certain parts of the country. I haven't seen a good accurate long-term map about that yet. If I find one, I'll let you know. But certain areas are certainly getting wetter on average than they were 30 years ago, while others are certainly drying out. So some of the plants, again, that might have made it more uh, adaptive to water or or drought then to the temperature still need to be considered but if you're going to be a good gardener and especially if you're doing a larger number of crops you really need to consider it before you maybe decide exactly what you want to try to propagate and so in a different way again that's sort of uh, my tips for gardening for the week it is something that I have come across people that really haven't even thought, well, they either don't realize it's happening or they've just never kept up with it. But it can make a difference in the success of your garden. The next subject might be a little bit controversial. I am really not settled 
on all my feelings about what we call gmo crops, genetically modified organisms. But they've got some new methods that actually uh, seem to be safe, unlike some of the GMOs I worry about. And they're, they're an RNA modification, not a total GMO. And what is the difference in layman's terms? Genetically modified, they will actually take the genes, I'll give you an ideal example, of corn, and this is a little scary, they take corn and they put in the genes of a bacillus, okay, it's a BT, bacillus thuringiensis, and they actually insert that gene from another living organism, in this case a bacteria, into the crop of corn itself, and it actually genetically modifies the corn with, with uh, material that is not from corn. That, that, I think, is a little bit of an open question yet. But with RNA modification, they're actually using the plant's same RNA, part of the DNA, and, and they, they move it or they, they splice it in somewhere, but they're not adding what I call strange or... They're not doing something Mother Nature may not do over time. I think we used to call it hybridizing. But I saw an article recently that kind of said, well, really, GMO and, and hybridizing are the same thing. No. No. When we hybridized, we took the plant and we improved, we call it that, to better fit exactly what the particular, again, with climate change, little areas and, and make the plant a little bit more exactly matching the environment around it. But when you GMO, when you start taking, they took, for instance, from an unsuccessful tomato they grew, they put fish genes, which sounds just crazy to me, in the tomato, supposedly to increase its tolerance for cold weather. But unfortunately, there were some people who got sick that happened to be allergic to fish. And when they ate the tomato, they got very ill. That's GMO. And I don't, by at this point, trust that at all. The RNA modification is, is, is a little bit different, so I'm going to give you a couple of minutes on it and give it to you for food for thought. This, can, this might kind of uh, spark your memory. We've heard a lot about RNA this past year as a messenger uh, of RNA vaccine technology and has been used for the first time to combat COVID-19 pandemic. Now, RNA-based technology has shown promise to make major contributions to agriculture. A group of researchers at the University of Chicago and two Chinese universities have announced that manipulating RNA can allow plants to yield dramatically more crops as well as have better drought resistance. Adding gene encoding for a protein called FTO to both rice and potato plants increased their yield by 50% in initial field test. The plants were larger, produced longer root systems, and could better tolerate drought conditions. Further analysis showed that the plants had increased their rate of photosynthesis considerably. FTO protein erases chemical marks on the RNA specifically, but remember, it's not like GMO. It doesn't add things to it. Specifically, it controls a process known, fancy, M6A, which it's just a key modification to the RNA of the plant that already exists. The FTO erases M6A to reduce some of the signals that tell the plants to slow down and reduce growth. Plants modified with the addition of FTO produce significantly more RNA than control plants. 
Experiments with both rice plants and potato plants, which are completely unrelated, incidentally, demonstrated the same results, indicating that the technique could be broadly applicable. These results are just the beginning, of course, but demonstrate the potential of a technology that could help address problems of poverty and food insecurity at a global scale, as well as responding to the ever-changing climate. Do bear in mind, folks, the world depends on plants for everything from wood, food, and medicine to flowers and oils, and to some degree, biofuels. This technique has the potential to dramatically increase the stock material we get from most of our plants. My only question is, in other plants that we've modified, one that I studied about, oh gosh, 15 years ago, they could increase the board feet trees grew tremendously by altering somewhat the RNA. Unfortunately, the trees grew faster, they got more timber, more material, but guess what? The material wasn't as strong. In Mother Nature, if you do things faster than Mother Nature wants, you've got to, it's the rules of physics, folks. Nothing comes for free in nature. So we do need to look into that, but at least it has great promise. Thanks for staying tuned to Organic Matters.